so this is from Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. The day and the hour unknown. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house, be, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. God of love, open our hearts and our minds this morning to hear the word that you have for us. Not long after I started curacy, I was contacted by the Archdeacon of Maidstone's office and told that he would be coming to see me in my actual house for one of those how are you getting on conversations. So obviously I attempted to give the impression that I had it all together domestically. I got some nice biscuits organized and about half an hour before his arrival, I was madly vacuuming the hallway and about to tidy up the lounge when he turned up really, really early. Well, I had to let him in. And as he stepped over the vacuum cleaner in our narrow hallway, uh, apologizing for having arrived so soon and then had to move the pile of stuff on the sofa so that he had space to sit down, I had to own up. Don't worry, I said, I was just trying to pretend I'm much better at keeping the housework under control than in reality I am. <laughs> and he laughed, and we went on to have um, a very helpful conversation about the realities of juggling home life and ministry and trying to kind of fit everything in together. Uh, and it was, it was a very real conversation. Well... He wasn't quite Jesus' unnerving example of the thief in the night, but I was certainly caught on the hop and found out by the archdeacon that I wanted to give a good impression to. So here we are, beginning Advent, a time of looking forward in anticipation, and we have this passage from Matthew that's all about expecting the unexpected. It's a second coming reading as we anticipate the first coming that we celebrate at Christmas. And I think it's quite a disconcerting passage uh, with the idea that normal life will be carrying on. People will be working, cooking, 
doing the usual daily things side by side, taking their kids to school, whatever it is that you do in your day, just as they did in Noah's time before the flood came. But when the Lord returns, some will be taken and others will be left. Do notice, though, that Jesus doesn't actually say here what will happen to those who are taken and those who are left. You can't actually tell from this reading who is fortunate. Taken might imply that those who are left are fortunate. It's not clear whether the true followers of the faith are the ones who are taken or who are left. There was a lot of very popular Christian fiction literature from America um, around the mid-90s and early 2000s. Some of you might be familiar with that, in particular the Left Behind series of books and films. And that promoted the idea that the good guys, the true Christians, get taken out of the picture and everybody else is left behind for the tribulation. And it's kind of made its way into popular evangelical Christian culture. That's actually an idea um, that began to circulate as late as the 19th century. So we need to be a bit careful about what the Bible does and doesn't tell us. What does seem clear, though, from Scripture, and from this passage in particular, is the following. Firstly, that the day that Jesus comes back will be experienced very differently by two people, side by side, if you like, in the same activity. And that's going to be dependence. Their experience is going to be in some way dependent on the very particular business between them and God. Secondly, we know that nobody will have advanced knowledge of when that day is apart from God. And our Bible translations in the English are generally a bit clumsy around this, but the Greek of verse 36 carries the sense that it's not something that anyone except God should attempt to put a date or time on. That that certain knowledge about it is neither attainable for us or desirable for us. One thing we do know, I suppose, is that it's definitely closer now than it's ever been before. Thirdly, we can sense that it seems to require some kind of vigilance from us in some way. In other words, we can't do it by knowing the date and preparing just before it happens. A bit like me doing all that crazy housework in the half hour before the archdeacon arrived. We can't do it that way. We get caught out in some way if we try and do that. So there's something about not taking things for granted in the life that we live now. And there's something about the right way to wait. And Advent is that period of active waiting, isn't it? I did an assembly last week at the Endowed School and we talked about the word anticipation. And it's a good word because it it carries with it not just the sense of waiting, but a very particular kind of waiting. You can have a kind of nervous anticipation, can't you, um, of something that's coming. But it also has a sense of excitement and certainly the anticipation around Christmas for a lot of us is a good kind of anticipation. Not all of us, I know, but for a lot of us. So it's an active thing. It's not a board at the bus stop sort of waiting, is it? And it's also not like last-minute housework to impress the guests when they arrive. So maybe it's more about the kind of waiting that you might do if you were keeping your house in order because you're trying to sell it. You never know when the agent's going to suddenly phone up and say, I'm going to bring some people around to view it. So 
you have to kind of make it look like you live an ordered existence and like your house is better than it probably is in the day-to-day, -day, don't you? So maybe you box up some of your stuff and kind of shift it to the garage. Um, maybe you clear a few surfaces down. Um, perhaps you're constantly nagging the family to put stuff away just so that it's ready when people come. You keep on top of the washing up, don't you, when you've got a house viewing, that sort of thing. Check the toilets, you know, particularly for teenagers have been in before. Uh, yeah. Let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> Some people go, oh, yes. <laughs> but I'm not sure it is that kind of waiting because actually, have you done, anyone done that? Had to prepare a house for viewing? Join me there. Tiring, isn't it? Isn't it exhausting? That's a really stressful kind of waiting because really it's an extended kind of that pretense I was putting on for the archdeacon, isn't it? It's that extended period of we, you know, this is how we live all the time, really, you know, and that's not really the reality, is it? So I wonder that whether it's actually about the reality of a life lived out according to kingdom values all the time and not in a stressful and striving way. I'm talking about whatever the muddle is in our lives, whatever it is we're dealing with, whether we're on that bit of the roller coaster or that bit, we are daily leaning on God for the sufficiency that we need to work out of the power of his Holy Spirit in those times. And so it's living in ways that are aligned to the priorities of the kingdom. So basically... We honour and serve one another and we're reflecting the good news of that kingdom for our families and our communities and the nation. And so it takes out that perpetual anxiety and strain, but if we live like that, it does mean that when Jesus comes back, he will catch us living ordinary lives out of the power of his spirit and along kingdom principles. Do you see the difference between that kind of stressy way of I've got to get my life absolutely perfect. And that continuous way of drawing on God and knowing that he's restoring and redeeming and healing and growing us. So God reveals enough about our future to give us hope, but not enough to mean that we don't need to live faith-filled lives fueled by the Holy Spirit. He means for this stuff to be embedded so that we can go on doing it, not have to pull it all together at the last minute. And we don't have to wait for a tidy and ordered world to live it out, do we? Because the world wasn't tidy when Jesus first came, and it won't be tidy until he comes back. We need to draw on the fuel of the Holy Spirit, take that light he offers us at Advent and beyond into the murky parts of our lives and the murky parts of the world in which we live. I'm going to finish with this Advent poem by Madeleine Lengel, who um, is the American author who wrote the book A Wrinkle in Time in the 60s. And it's called Into the Darkest Hour. It was a time like this. War and tumult of war, a horror in the air. Hungry yawned the abyss, and yet there came the star and the child most wonderfully there. It was a time like this of fear and lust for power, license and greed and blight, and yet the Prince of Bliss came into the darkest hour in quiet and silent light. And in a time like this, how celebrate his birth? <laughs> 